Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. And welcome to 2020. We're living in the future. Blade Runner is officially a period piece. Did you see everyone kind of posting those sort of like, oh, well, Blade yeah. Runner, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like well, they always do anytime we reach one of those pop culture milestones, like when we reached um, the future from Back to the Future and mm-hmm. all that that nonsense. Yeah. Why are you so angry? I don't know. I just don't, I don't care about that stuff, I guess. You're not disappointed that we're not in flying cars? I mean, isn't the future in Blade Runner bad? Yeah, but aesthetically it's cool. Sure. But- I think the point of this yeah, show, yeah, the no, movie, I, is that yeah. it's unsustainable. Yes, that's very true. A lot, lot of pollution, right? Yeah, well, I guess... In some instances, we're, maybe we're worse off than Blade Runner. I mean, we don't have the cool robots. We don't have the sex robots. You're right, we don't. We're close. We're close yeah. to sex robots, right? I yeah. believe so. Yeah. I mean, we have some form of sex robots. Not that I've had sex with ro- a robot, but... You guessed it, audience. This is our sex robot episode. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. It's a new year. Mm-hmm. We are uh, breaking format for this episode of What Did We Miss to kind of do our 2019 in review. We're going to be talking about uh, the new stuff from 2019 that we saw or listened to or read. Yep. Uh, and as well as some some older things that we, we caught up on that weren't necessarily topics of any episodes, but- Mm-hmm. You know, we're our, we're on our own individual uh, WDWM homework lists. Looking at a lot of things that I had consumed th- throughout the year, it was funny how much I realized that I had mentioned a lot of things that I had caught up on on, on the show. So people are probably will hear a bunch of things that we've mentioned, but maybe we'll get into it a little bit more in this episode. Mm-hmm. Because the point of the show is to catch up on pop culture blind spots and Oftentimes, you know, we do that independently. That was the whole point is we wanted to come together and talk about these things that we always did. So we always wanted to be open to new things, even if that meant old things and new things and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Let's rewind to January. Do you remember January at all? Uh, Yeah. We were actually starting this. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. When did we record the first episode? I think it was January. Of last like year. right at the very beginning, right? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, it didn't go up till March, but we we got a few under our belts before going live with the show. So it, it is funny because a lot of older things were kind of centered around the show. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were still trying to keep up with a lot of new stuff. So so what were you listening to this, this year? I listened to no new music. No now. new music whatsoever. I really did not, no. Huh. So w- w- what's your music listening habits? You know, they're dwindling. I just sold my record collection. <gasps> for I shame. I know. Well, we're, we're you know, gearing up for a potential move. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't put a record on in like 12 months. Yeah. To be honest. And they were just sitting there. We've got some house projects. So it's like, well, I can continue to not listen to these and then have to pack them up and move them, which is annoying. Or which I is c- what I just did. Yeah. Or I can sell them and, you know, that's... Uh, Reap the benefits. That's money that I can put towards buying paint for rooms and getting some work done on the outside of the house, that kind of thing. Sure. So do you you have Spotify or one of the streaming services? Yeah, yeah. We had Spotify. Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I, I listened mostly to news. It was a, a big chaotic year to not 
be staying in the loop on, you know? Yeah. Um, so I didn't listen to any new stuff. Okay. How about you? What's uh, What was on your radar for either new releases from bands you liked or, or new yeah. artists? Earlier in the year, I was really into Sharon Van Etten's new record. It's called Remind Me Tomorrow. And I think I had talked about this in the Fish episode, actually, but I, I really took a liking to her when she popped up in the the season three of Twin Peaks. Um, and so uh, she new record came out earlier this year. And um, yeah, she just has this really great voice. Um, so uh, let me play you a song. Yeah, yeah, I did know that. Uh, that was um, Sandra had that in rotation quite a bit. Nice, yeah. Her her last few records were a little more singer songwritery, and this one, uh, a little more electronics, a little more synthesizer. Guitars are a little gnarlier, but I I love her voice. This album is kind of like uh, she talks a lot about her family because she just had a kid and different approach than her last few records. I like the last record too mm-hmm. a lot, but this one. Um, I've been listening, revisiting throughout the year. I've really been into um, the new M83 record, which is called DS, um, I guess, 7. It's DSVII kind of thing. It's mostly instrumental, and it was kind of inspired by um, Anthony Gonzalez, um, his love of video game music. So mm-hmm. it kind of has that quality to it. Mm-hmm. Uh just the scope and how epic it is and but it's not super synth heavy like a lot of their other stuff which is surprising it has a lot of piano and acoustic guitar and stuff so i've been playing that quite a bit uh the new chromatics uh, is pretty good they're another band that um was on the twin peaks soundtrack so it has that kind of like hazy synthy um shoegazy kind of vibe to it um, sure but i think both chroma uh the the overlapping theme with a lot of stuff, if, especially when I'm looking at it on paper, is that it's all super moody and kind of feels like it could be used for like a movie soundtrack. Uh, and that's kind of that's where my headspace has been in the past few years. Like I I kind of because I've been watching more and more movies, um, I, I typically find myself in that headspace of wanting that kind of soundscapey, moody kind of textural stuff. Uh, I lied. There's one new album I can think of that I did engage with. That was Jenny Lewis's new album. Oh, how's that? I liked it. Yeah. yeah. And actually, uh, she was in Providence in October or November, but Sandra and I went and saw it. It was great. It was a great show. Um, I'd always sort of 
been a casual fan. You know, I think it was something that I, I didn't seek out until this one, but it was always something that, um, you know, Sandra would be listening to her friends of mine really like her music. And I have no reason not to have not engaged with it other than just, I just didn't. But I've always really enjoyed whatever of hers that I heard. Uh, and this is the first one I really sat down with and spent some time with. And yeah, I really liked it. I don't really have much to say because I am intimidated about talking about music. <laughs> uh, I, I really liked uh, her albums Rabbit Fur Coat and Acid Tongue. Uh, the new one uh, I had trouble getting into. I don't think it's her or the music. I think it's just where I was at at mm-hmm. the time of listening to it. I think that's part of the problem too is there's just so much stuff and you're trying to keep up with older artists that you enjoy and then new artists and so sometimes it's just all too much. So there's a number of albums I would listen to that I was like, oh, that's pretty good. I like that. But I didn't really live with it. And maybe if I had, I, I, I would love it. Um, but because there's so much, sometimes it's, some things just get the ax. Sure. But I also really loved Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth's um her first solo record. Oh, great. How's that? It's cool. Really gnarly, uh, kind of minimal, but she does her thing. You know, she has a very specific way of singing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you either like Kim Gordon's voice or hate it. <laughs> it's pretty divisive, but texturally it is kind of more industrial. Um, it's interesting. It's not what I expected necessarily. It is and it isn't. Um, and then... I've also been obsessed with the soundtrack from Watchmen, the TV show Watchmen. Oh, okay. Trent Reznor and uh, Atticus Ross. Atticus Ross, yeah. yeah. It's just, you know, they're in the pocket and they're doing this great soundtrack work. And they've been doing really good work for the past few years. And this one in particular is something about it. So, I mean, it's definitely, it doesn't deviate much from what they do, but I do think it has a little more of a kind of 80s movie soundtrack kind mm-hmm. of influence on it. Yeah, and it, it definitely, synthesizers. and it definitely has, uh, you know, some sonic overlap with like pretty hate machine. Yeah, like the earlier stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so the rest of the soundtrack kind of um, varies between stuff like that and maybe maybe some more plaintive kind of piano stuff with lots of you know sonic textures and soundscapes over them um but i'm i've really really enjoy the soundtrack i've been listening to it a lot but i really love the show um have you watched any of it yet i haven't no uh but you've read watchmen yes yes yeah i think if you've read watchmen that it's 
it's such a rewarding show and it's going in directions that I didn't really anticipate. I didn't need or want. It's it's one of those things where, you know, when they announce something like this, where it, you're like, I was immediately skeptical. Like, oh, why, sure. why bother? Why bother doing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when they said, well, it's not really an adaptation. It's a direct sequel. Well, okay. That's yeah. That also raises eyebrows. That's weird. Okay. I guess that's, a little more interesting, but whatever. And then as soon as I watched it, it was just immediately engaging and thoughtful. And it deals a lot with race um, and and police brutality. Um, it's really interesting uh, and very political. But, is, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, the, the original comic is, yeah. Now, had you ever read any of the sequel comics that DC did? No, no. I haven't heard good things. Um, I just didn't. I was never interested. And, you know, not to, like, pick a side or be like, oh, well, you know, Alan Moore doesn't want them to do it, but they're yeah. doing it anyway. Um, it just felt like, you know, the story was what it was and it was told the way it was. And uh, I liked that. I liked that it was a short, self-contained, it had a point, it had a point of view, it had an objective, it did all those things. I didn't need I didn't need more. I didn't need the further adventures of Night Owl and yeah. Silk Spectre, you know what I mean? Mhm. This takes place um in 2019. So there are things that happen in the original and there are characters from the original that that do cross over but not in ways that you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh there's only I, I believe two episodes left to air at at the point of this recording of this episode. Um and uh, it's the show that I'm most looking forward to every week to watch. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, I do think you should catch up with it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Yeah. One of my TV highlights, my my must-see TV of the year was The Righteous Gemstones, which oh, was also yeah. on HBO. Did you watch that? No. It's so good. Yeah. And it displays a restraint for Danny McBride that I was not expecting. I haven't really watched any of his shows that were on HBO, Eastbound and Down. And did East, you do another one too? Oh, he did Vice Principles, Vice Principles. which is very short-lived. And I Have only, you seen both of those? Eastbound and Down, I've seen all of I rewatched over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, Vice Principles, I only watched the first season of. Vice Principles, really dark. And I just, I remember recognizing what they were doing. And I was like, you know, I'm just not feeling this right now. Um, Eastbound and Down is great, but he is just awful and obnoxious and so few of the characters are likable. It's really just, but he is very charming and manages to, you know, find some heart in such a shitty person in that show. In Righteous Gemstones, he he, it's a less wacky, over the top kind of character for him. Adam Devine from uh, Workaholics is also playing a much more uh, restrained and uh, fairly level headed character as opposed he always plays a you know a version of himself that's kind of all over the place and screaming Edie Patterson though is the fucking star of the show hands down she just every week I was looking forward to what she was going to be doing what else has she done she did she was in Vice Principles okay she was in Knives Out um, which I haven't seen yet which you haven't seen yet very angry um but she is just so odd and like there is just a an intensity and a strangeness to her character in this show. It's just yeah, it's 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 really something. She's filthy. Like so the the premise is that they are a family of mega preachers. Um 
and she is just this like repressed powder keg of just raw gnarly sexual energy and frustration and she's just going off constantly she's got this really um just sad sack of a fiance who she's just awful to but they have such a weird like they they he sort of gets off on her being awful to him it's 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 yeah but anyway um it's great uh i loved it john goodman's great in it does danny mcbride does he write mm-hmm. on all of these shows yeah is he like the creator writer kind of mm-hmm. yeah um showrunner thing yeah so him jody hill oh, and yeah. david gordon green the three of them all went to film school in north yep. carolina together yeah and sort of came up um, I didn't know David Gordon Green was connected to the TV shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's directed some episodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, what a fascinating career, mm-hmm. <laughs> David Gordon Green. <laughs> so his movies are just all over the place. Mm-hmm. Any other TV shows this year that were that were exciting for you? Or uh, well, the Good Place is winding down. Yeah. How are you feeling about it? I feel like. I'm finishing it out of a sense of obligation, but I don't know if I care about it anymore. I don't either. And I don't I don't want to pin I don't want to place that blame solely on the Eleanor and Chidi dynamic or their relationship. But I do feel like maybe like most Mike Schur TV shows, he put too much emphasis on that when I never really re- that never re- resonated with me. Maybe I have no heart. I don't know. I think it works for some people, just like um, it worked in Parks and Rec, but it didn't work for Parks and Rec in for me, and it d- doesn't work for this either. What? You didn't like the Leslie and Ben relationship? Yeah, that never really worked for me. Oh. Did you? Do you yeah. like? I think the show was just like, this is the coupling that we want to see, and I never really, I never cared about it. Like, it's fine. I I was ambivalent about it. It wasn't like... Oh, this ruined the show, but I it never really interests me. And I think sometimes in this last season of The Good Place, some of the you know, philosophical observations that they're making is just like, you know, keep trying, be nice to each other, and it's just like, "Oh, is this for kids now?" Yeah, I I what I always enjoyed about the show at least for the first couple of seasons was you know, the, the, the general premise that the characters were trying to sort of correct their, you know, the mistakes they made in their their living lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was never so much the, the larger fate of the universe kind of story that they seem to have stumbled into. I don't really care about the machinations of heaven and hell, and I don't really care about I'm sorry, the good place and the bad place. It, it it became so complicated and plotty in the third season in a way that just was kind of boring because I don't I don't think the world building was ever necessarily what was appealing about it. I liked the characters sort of in this big broad philosophical scenario and I liked watching them sort of act through that. I didn't need a a I don't know. It see it seems like they they tried to put an overarching fantasy narrative where there didn't need to be one. Well, I, th- I think he had that from the beginning. I'm pretty sure 
he had the premise and then he got together with Damon Lindelof, creator of Lost and the new Watchmen TV show and picked his brain about doing a show that was mythology based, something that has this overarching narrative um, with big twists and, and, and reveals and, and I think he hashed most of it out then and he kind of knew where he was going with that. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's his forte necessarily. I mean, I think, I think the details of the first few seasons, like on an episode basis, like the trolley problem episode, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. And it's kind of a bummer cause that's the show I was, I was really excited about that show in those first few seasons. And now it just feels like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to finish this now mm-hmm. because I'm, I made it this far. I might as well. Yeah, I, I think it was impressive that they managed to pull off such a high concept as well as they did. Yeah, oh, for sure. And I think what was really fun the first couple of seasons is that it would always end with this unexpected note and they would establish a new normal and then the next season they would have to deal with that. And I feel like in the third season, there were like three resets. Yeah. There were three new normals established. And I don't think I ever got enough time to give a shit about any one of sure. them. But I almost think, though, that it was kind of necessary because some of them weren't interesting to begin with, you know? Uh, and I don't want to give anything away to anyone that hasn't seen it as interested in the show, although they're probably not interested now that we're kind of like... <laughs> well, you know, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, but you never know. Um, but um, I-, I do think the way the third season started, you know, that wasn't entirely interesting to me. Um, so when it reset right away, I was happy that they got out of that because I was like, well, you understand what the show needs and it didn't need that. Um, but I understand that racing through that sometimes could feel kind of like, well, what am I rooting for? Yeah. What's, you know, what's the, what's the point of all this, I guess. Mm-hmm. But again, the show is telling you the point is these characters and, and their relationship together. And I don't necessarily buy that. Yeah, once it stopped being about Eleanor proving she can be a good person, like that was that was the hook. Yeah, I don't care anymore. For me, this year, uh, two really big shows came to an end. Uh, these are shows that I've I've loved for quite a few years, and their final seasons pretty much stick the landing. And I've talked about them before on the show, um, but that's uh, Crazy Ex Girlfriend and Jane the Virgin, both shows that are uh, unexpected. Uh, in their approach, J- uh, Jane the Virgin, which is sort of a take on the telenovela, um, which was smart and fascinating and had this core relationship of uh, this family of um, the grandmother, the mother, and the daughter. And Multi-generational that was, family. And that was always the core of the show. Um, and, and it had just such a great cast, um, and it always poked fun at itself while also taking everything... Um, kind of seriously. It's really funny and charming, and the ending w- was good. Um, maybe not the greatest ending, but as probably the ending it needed. Mm-hmm. And Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was similar where another show, which was like a deconstruction of the romantic comedy, um, and the idea that, you know, that title, which is sort of a sexist term, is built into the show. Uh, and it sort of pokes fun at those tropes. Um, but the other thing about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is it's a musical. So each episode brilliantly would have a song that was sort of in a, its own genre, 
but also use that genre to sort of comment on what was happening to the character at the time. So it was always really smart and clever. And um, Meg and I were fortunate enough to go see a live performance um, oh, cool. with the cast doing a lot of the songs from the show. And that was a highlight of the year for, for me. It was pretty great. And mm-hmm. I'm sad that those shows are gone, but I do think that they're worth revisiting. And Meg and I listen to the music from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend all the time. And I'm always trying to get people to watch them because they're both shows that not a ton of people watch, especially Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And when we saw them live, I guess the guy who greenlit it from the C- CW... Mm-hmm. Is that the network? I think that's the network, right? Where the Flash and all that shit. Is oh like. yeah, yeah, yeah. CW. He, the The president was there at the oh, show, cool. and she said, "Thank you for keeping us on the air because we are the lowest rated syndicated television show <laughs> to like ever air or something like that." So it was one of those things that became a critic's darling, and no one really, really watched it. But they were just like, "Well, it's cheap enough. We'll keep it on the air." So um, it's, I think both shows are on Netflix and they're mm-hmm. really, really great and worth watching. Nice. I guess we can talk briefly about The Mandalorian. This, sure. You know, uh, at this point, by the time you hear this, it will have ended. So who knows? It could have really like taken a dive. But the first four I thought have been really good. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it too. Uh, I wish sometimes it would be more than the um i wish it would subvert its kind of genre trappings just a little bit more instead of saying like here's seven samurai with an atst mm-hmm. from star wars um but i i do like it i yeah. do like it. i'm not sure where it's going and i do like um its standalone aspects and its its pacing yeah uh, i i uh have been talking with several friends that you know the last decade of tv has really kind of conditioned us for these you know dense HBO full hour episodes of television and I was struck by how tight and simple this has been so far. Yeah, I'm really enjoying getting it an episode a week. That's great as well. And I don't know if it would I don't know if watching this show all in a weekend would be as exciting. No, I don't think so either. Uh, although Baby Yoda has sort of taken over the internet at of course. this point. Um super cute. Uh, went to Disney a few weeks ago. No Baby Yoda merchandise yet. They seem to drop the ball on that because they wanted to keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the merchandise is coming. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed the characters. I love that the bounty hunter is not a Terminator. He's flawed. He yeah, gets his ass kicked Yeah, gets lot. his ass kicked a lot. Uh, he's just a guy, you know? And, yeah. And I think it's it's taken a few episodes to sort of see past the you know, the Boba Fett shape of it all. And uh, yeah, he is he is just a dude and it's just a thing he puts on and apparently never takes off. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm kind of nervous about him taking it off and that being a thing, like, for the show. Obviously, like, it seems like that's kind of where it's going. Like, we're going to get more backstory for the character and learn more about the Mandalorians in general, which was a part of the Clone Wars TV show. Then maybe Rebels as well. Yeah, which I, haven't, I, haven't I, haven't I haven't seen Rebels. Rebels and yeah. I didn't finish Clone Wars, but Yeah. Uh it's all on Disney Plus now, so yeah. there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going and I kinda like this idea. Um you know, if they do something similar for their Obi Wan T V show, I think that's pretty exciting. Yes. Yeah. I I just like to see Ewan McGregor again as Obi-Wan. And if nothing else, it has so far been two hours of Star Wars, 
with not a single character we've seen before. I mean, you can argue that the Mandalorian is just a reskinned Boba Fett and there is a an IG bounty hunter robot, but there's been no Skywalkers. You know, there's been no familiar smugglers and do you think co- co-pilots. Do so. you think that's coming up though? You know, I hope not. Yeah. I would really be fine with that not happening. I almost see it going in a direction where it's setting up some things for the sequel trilogy, the seven eight, Star Wars 789. I think the nostalgia that it's playing off of is sort of a familiar feel and a, a you know, familiar iconography, but it's um you know, it's not giving you a new Luke, it's not giving you a new Darth Vader. It's not what I was expecting and I'm happy for that. So, cool. Yeah. So to kind of wrap up our TV chat, I I feel like I have to mention this show that has sort of been the one comfort for me this whole year. And I discovered it right at the beginning of the year and we plowed through seven seasons of it and we watched the newest season and that's the Great British Baking Show. Oh, there you go. I thought you were going to say Fox and Friends. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That would be number two. That's the second. Uh, And it's just such a... It's one of those shows where, you know, we discovered it for ourselves early this year and we'd mentioned it to people and and everyone's like, oh, isn't it just so uh, comforting? It's so delightful. It It is. It's funny because I saw an interview with John Oliver and he was just like, oh, no, it's the exact opposite. Those people hate themselves. They're, it's very British. Uh, and maybe that's true. But and there is that element of tension when you're watching it are they going to pull this off kind of thing but I think the core the backbone of the show where you see these contestants and they're all rooting for each other ultimately and they're they're all there and they're making friends yeah yeah it's it's a show about people trying their best and nobody's trying to stab one another in the back yeah and it's always oh the bake let you down you know oh this that was disappointing it wasn't just like you're a piece of shit yeah which which a lot of american reality tv shows do right or um you know famous british douche gordon ramsay would yeah would not allow someone to blame the humidity in the tent yeah you need to you need to compensate for that shit and then he'd slap him around a little bit (laughs) So so Meg really got into the show called Puffin Rock earlier this year. And mm-hmm. this is an animated uh, I think we've discussed Irish Rock. show. Yeah. Um it's on Netflix. Uh and it's like kind of nighttime feel good show for her where she can feeling tense or whatnot and she can put it on and it really calms her down. Um and so Meg really likes puffins. And so she's doing a search for puffins and we saw this video where Gordon Ramsay was catching puffins to cook. And he so mercilessly has this long pole with a net at the end of it and the puffin would come flying up and they fly low to the ground and he'd swing it and catch one and then it'd be writhing around in the net and he pulled it out of the net and he snapped its neck. And then at that point, Meg was just like, fuck Gordon Ramsay. No more Gordon Ramsay. Not that we ever watch any Gordon Ramsay, but I was just like, oh, this is, that was a bit much. Yeah, that seems intense. I'm surprised that the puffin is an animal that is um, publicly captured and killed like that. It it, it seems like it should be, it seems like it would be a protected species. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just that cute factor. Well, that's the reason for the existence of the Porgs in The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. It was a practical thing because they were all over the island yep. that they were filming. And so 
it was a way to say, well, we can make our own creatures based off of these things, which are plentiful and mm-hmm. everywhere on, on this island. Um, so I think maybe that they are kind of everywhere yeah. in this certain sure. uh, portion of the world. So, um, yeah. So I guess let's uh, move on a bit and maybe talk about some some movies from this year. Yeah. And maybe, you know, we're not going to talk about The Irishman or Endgame or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So maybe we should dig a little deeper. Okay. Um, Are we going to talk about Knives Out? Fuck you, Tony. <laughs> so this is a first. Uh, so this is the first week of December. Uh, and because Matt's been busy moving and having to do adult shit, he hasn't seen Knives Out or The Irishman. And I've beaten him to both of them. Uh, and he's always the first one to see stuff. Uh, it's driving me crazy. So eat a fat turd, Matt. Even my brother saw Knives Out. And your brother's an idiot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm going to get a text for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's not an idiot. So are there anything that uh, anything movie-wise that you saw from 2019 that you wanted to talk about that maybe kind of went under the radar a bit? Well, I want to talk about one that I think a lot of people were very excited for and then it came out and then I didn't really hear anything else about it. I know I certainly like walked away like, oh, whatever, but um, El Camino? Oh, yeah. Uh, I I don't know that I needed a Breaking Bad movie. Sure. I don't know that I, you know, I, I guess it it's nice to see Jesse sort of get the, maybe the ending we all hoped for him. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, th- I think there was something about the way his story ended at the end of Breaking Bad that was just so tragic and powerful and emotional. You know, I never, I never found myself asking the question, what happens to Jesse after the credits roll? And I don't know that this necessarily you know, shares anything about what happens that, makes me care about it it doesn't take away from anything um but yeah it was just kind of whatever and i think too especially um considering how good better call saul has been it's hard not to see it as a bit of a letdown i mean i mean good for them for realizing oh this isn't a show yeah we've got maybe two hours of story to tell here but even then it just uh it's yeah i don't know it didn't feel like I, i needed it yeah, I you know, I think that's fair. I think for me what's what made it compelling it was was how that story was told because I think Vince Gilligan is a really great visual director and you know, seeing that kind of consideration to camera movement and composition uh and and blocking was exciting for me because no one on TV is really doing that that much. Uh, especially the way he films process like there's that w- amazing overhead shot of of Todd's apartment um and you can see Jesse searching through the whole thing and it's shot from overhead and you see the whole it's like a interior cutout uh and that's more exciting than probably I don't know 80% of what I watched on TV this year. Yeah, I I, I I, think I just wish maybe those talents had been directed towards sure. something that wasn't Breaking Bad adjacent. Yeah. Because, you know, and not to be like a, you know, plot hole guy or whatever, but the show was so good about, you know, putting something on a character and showing the repercussions. 
and that stuck with everybody. Yeah. Everybody had baggage they carried through that entire show. And then with El Camino, it seems like he literally just slept it off. Jesse? Yeah. He's like he just he just went to Badger's house, woke up the next day and he's like I'm going to do some really cool shit for the next hour and a half. Yeah, but I don't know because like there's that tension for those those hour and, that hour and a half. After that moment, he's on the run. He's not free. And I think he's going to live with all this for the rest of his life. And there's definitely these moments where he's fighting for his life. And you could tell he's just like, if I die, fuck it. Because I have nothing. I have nothing else. And I kind of like that. And again, I liked its kind of Western trappings. Uh, and it really, really leaned into it with a, a literal shootout. Mm-hmm. Um, so again... It's it's kind of what Roger Ebert always said. It's not what it's about. It's how it's about it. Yeah. And, and that's what I liked about it. And I also like how the ending was sort of a mirror of Jesse's ending for Breaking Bad, except for it's a little more hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the ending of the other one, he's on the loose, but it's just like, I mean, he had suffered so much. Uh, and he's he did a lot of bad things, so he's going to live with that. And this one felt a little more like, at least this is a new start kind of thing. Sure. And so, yeah, was it necessary? Not not really, no. But if we're going to get it, I think that this version of it is is good. Yeah, that's um, fair. Any other movies? No, I didn't watch any other movies. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> um, uh, wildly yeah. switching gears. I thought Booksmart was great. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Okay. I, I'm a sucker for a good teen movie anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought this was a lot of fun. I thought those two leads were fucking hysterical. I thought they were so charming. Sure. I thought the whole thing was really smart. I was kind of disappointed with with Booksmart. Oh, yeah? I don't think we've talked about this. Yeah. I just, I thought the leads were great, especially Caitlin Deaver. I thought she's she's amazing. Um, I thought that the movie sort of needed to take it down a couple notches and that it felt like it was trying too hard, maybe. And it felt really untethered from reality in a lot of points, especially with um, like it's trying to say this thing about these two girls and their point in their life. But then it kind of has all these characters that are all going to really, really fancy colleges. Uh, It just felt like so disconnected from that experience that it was trying to convey. And I didn't find a lot of it to be very funny. I thought it, a lot of it felt contrived to oh, me. Yeah. Yeah. I thought like, I mean, you know, it's doing the super bad thing and I think super bad is, is a significantly better movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like a, a raunchy teen comedy is always going to be a contrivance. Sure. And I think, I, I think this, you know, hits all the beats that you expect and want from that kind of movie. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, it's just the simple shift in perspective. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way about um, Crazy Rich Asians, which I, was that a 2019 or 20? That was last year. Um, you know, I didn't love it, but yeah. I liked it more than I would typically like that kind of rom-com. Sure. Because again, it was just it was just a shift in perspective. And that yeah. alone is like, oh, okay, this is a different experience. It's a different point of view. This is... These movies are all going to be the same, so I keep making them with the same People. looking or the yeah. same. Yeah. Do you think something like that has legs? Because you know, once, hopefully, when more movies like that come out, because I want more book smarts. 
hopefully when more movies come out like that, that this movie maybe won't age as well. Well, I mean, I don't think it has to be limited to just any particular genre. Sure. That, I mean, I think you can... I think that maybe applies more to Crazy Rich Asians, which I don't think is particularly good. It's, it's fine. Right. But again, I, I think despite thinking it was just fine, I did recognize that I enjoyed it more because I had not seen a movie like it before. Sure. And I think carrying that over into anything, because you can... What was it called? Fuck. Um, Black Panther. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Black Panther's a good example, but that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, Widows. Yeah. That was a great heist movie. Sure. And it's like, okay, well, what if women do the heist this time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. But I think Widows works because it's not just what if it were women. No, I, I recognize that. And, and that's, 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 you know, dumbing it all down. Sure. But at the end of the day, that's like, you know, that's not insignificant. Yeah. And it's such, it, it can be such a trivial way to describe it but it's also such a an easy shift that there's really no reason it's not happening more along those lines of taking like a familiar genre uh and then maybe having representation be the thing that maybe shifts the gear of that genre there's this movie from earlier in the year called knife plus heart i'm sorry did you say knives out i'm gonna fucking kill you not if Jeff gets to me first. <laughs> yeah, so this movie from earlier in the year called Knife Plus Heart, and it's directed by Yann Gonzalez, and it's a French film. And it's sort of a modern version of um, a giallo movie. Giallos are typically, um, and we've talked about them a bit in the past because I love a lot of giallo movies, um, Suspiria uh, being a prime example. Mm-hmm. Anything uh, goes with giallo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love giallo. You know, usually with Giallo, you get a lot of these kind of heightened, uh, violent murder scenes, usually with a lot of color. Um, and they're kind of known for having killers with black gloves, mysterious killers with black gloves. Um, the big difference with this movie is that it takes place in the porn industry in the 80s, um, particularly uh, gay porn, with a female director. Uh, so... It subtly subverts kind of what you'd see in a normal giallo, but it's a pretty great um, slasher film, um, and it has a a great kind of relationship at the core of the movie. Um, not a ton of people are talking about it. Horror fans uh, seem to like it quite a bit, um, but the soundtrack is by Yan Gonzalez's brother, Anthony, who's from M83, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and I like the soundtrack for this, uh, which is also 80s synthy kind of stuff. Um, but that was really good. And another one that not a lot of people are talking about is called Anaria. And this is a Swedish film. And I think you'd really like this. It's directed by Pella Kagerman and Hugo. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Lilja, L-I-L-J-A. Uh, and it's about, um, it's a science fiction film. And it's about this a ship called the Anaria. And it's making a trip from Earth to Mars and transporting a whole, almost like a whole kind of, you know, there's thousands of people on here. It's almost like a city. Yeah. Uh, and on their course, they kind of inadvertently get out of their loop or their... Um, their trajectory? Of, yeah. They get knocked off course? Yep. Uh, so they get knocked off course. They can't get back on. Uh, and so basically it's about the inevitability that they're lost in, out in space. Um, but it takes that premise pretty seriously. 
and a lot of it is about sort of that existential crisis of coming to terms with knowing that your life has no purpose and no meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really great movie. It does a good job of kind of developing this world and showing how people would re- react to these things or how sometimes like small victories are helpful to to cope with something so you know so large and and inescapable um but it's bleak as fuck so if you're not <laughs> if you're not into like anything that's super super dark um you need some feel good stuff this is not the movie for you but it's it's really fascinating um it's currently on hulu so i i really recommend checking that out not a lot of people are talking yeah. about it. Um, here's two from this year that had uh, oddly similar plots, which, um, you know, I, I thought has to be a coincidence on top of the fact that they're both based around famous Japanese monsters, but Detective Pikachu and Godzilla <laughs> King of the Monsters were basically the same movie. <laughs> two movies about nefarious evil dudes trying to harness the power of these well-loved icons okay for their own evil misdeeds <laughs> <laughs> one of them was less great than the other <laughs> uh, should we leave it up to I know to... Detective Pikachu was it's not very good it's not very good and I think we discussed this Godzilla was maybe half an hour too long yeah you could have trimmed about 30 40 minutes of uh, human talky talk yeah, because the monster stuff was a lot of fun. The monster stuff is pretty fun, and it leaned into a lot of the weirdness. You know, the whole, um, you know, Hollow Earth and subterranean ancient cities, mm-hmm. um, just big balls out monster fights. It was great. It so, was very fun. So along those lines, maybe we should start talking about older things that we had consumed throughout 2019. Because you sure. know, the point of our show is catching up pop culture blind spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I've mentioned this a number of times, I think this year on the show, but I did a deep dive into Godzilla movies. Mm-hmm. It was primarily because, um, Godzilla King of the Monsters, uh, came out this year. And th- that's sort of what I always do. I look for, so if a new movie's coming out and I'm unfamiliar with its inspiration, um, sometimes I like to go back and kind of fill that in. And so for me this year, it seems apropos to, to, to dig deep into Godzilla. So I watched all but two of the Showa-era Godzilla movies. Um, and so that's from 1954 to um, 1975. And so this is like the heyday of Godzilla movies and kind of, you know, spawn the whole kaiju genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I found that there is a lot of value there. Um, they're obviously low budget and they're quirky, um, but they're really weird and they have a lot of personality. And I think it, it, elements of them have like, these really inspired creative moments. King Kong versus Godzilla has a scene where uh, King Kong is fighting this giant squid and it's an actual literal squid on a small set. And you just see it writhing through the set. And it's amazing because I've never seen anything quite like that on on film. Right. Um, but yeah, so I watched like a good 15 or so movies, I believe. Uh, my favorites being um, 
um, Terror of Mecha Godzilla. Um, Destroy All Monsters is a lot of fun. Mothra versus Godzilla. Ghidra, the three-headed monster, is a lot of fun. Uh, what else? Oh, and one of my favorites, which is um, Godzilla versus the the versus Hidora, or the Smog Monster. Um, and that one is actually directed by Yoshimitsu Bano, and he only did like two of them. But his is like super. This this movie is super sixties psychedelic. Uh, it's really strange and the smog monster itself is a weird creature um yeah yeah it seems like smog is a tough one to make a rubber suit for it looks really cool yeah (laughs) it's really weird looking yeah um but it feels like a 60s movie where not a lot of godzilla movies do where it has that like an american 60s yeah psychedelic and stuff like that yeah it even has like go-go dancers and stuff it's really strange but that one is really really cool yeah um, have you ever have you watched any Godzilla movies? Not in a long time. Yeah. Um, Were you ever a fan of them? Or? Yeah, I remember when they used to run them on. I want to say they would play old Godzilla movies, either like on Sci Fi Channel, maybe a specific time of year, kind of like how they'd always do the big James Bond marathons on TBS every summer. I felt like there was a, a kind of window where they, where they would always do, you know, one or two movies every Saturday or something. Um, so I would I would always kind of watch them, not passively, but it was always a thing where oh I'm in the middle of one I'll watch to the end and maybe I'll watch a little bit of the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was always kind of in and out. Yeah, it, I I was really big into Godzilla versus Megalon, which has um, Chit Jaguar, who's mm-hmm. like this giant, his robot who can grow to Godzilla size uh, proportions and help fight monsters. Yeah, I always liked. Um, Godzilla versus Monster Zero. Oh yeah, which might have a couple of different titles. I yeah. think is the case with a lot of them. I think that one is also called um, something Invasion of Astro Monster. Yeah, so that's the one yeah. where uh, this alien race comes from Planet X and is like, we got a problem. We got this three-headed monster who's kicking our asses. We got to borrow Godzilla and Rodan, and we'll cure cancer if you give them to us. Yep. So Earth's like, sure thing, sounds great. Sends Godzilla and Rodan to the moon. Mm-hmm. They fight what turns out to be King Ghidorah. Mm-hmm. There's a great shot of Godzilla and Rodan waving goodbye to the astronauts that have delivered them to the moon. Yeah, I think that's also the one where he does this crazy like bouncing dance thingy. Oh, maybe. Because there's like lower gravity yeah, yeah. or something. He's jumping up and down. But it's all an evil plot. Yeah. The Planet X invaders have brainwashed Godzilla and Rodan and now have sent them and Ghidorah to Earth to yeah. just wreck havoc. It's it's pretty ridiculous. It's really fun. I think that's the thing with a lot of them is there's just so much inventive weirdness uh, and just strange choices that make them so fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about this a lot with modern movies is how they feel they're just expensive. And even the new Godzilla movie, it's very expensive and it's all up on the screen. But sometimes these things, they may be super cheap, but it's not about verisimilitude. It's not about saying like, oh, this looks like reality. It's just about what they did with what they had. Yeah. And so a lot of times you see like these really crazy, there are these moments where these guys in these giant rubber costumes and all these fireworks are going off right next to them. And there's no way someone didn't catch on fire. Right. And and it's, I don't know, there's something about it. It's just crazy and charming and a lot of fun. Um, and I recently picked up Criterion, put out a box set of the whole Showa era of Godzilla films and there's two that 
have been unavailable for watching anywhere. So I'm excited to finish up and watch those last two. Although I hear that neither of them were particularly good, but um, it's a beautiful box set. Um, nice, a lot of great artwork. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I did three kind of like '90s staples that I hadn't seen until this past summer: um, Swingers, Go, and Gross Point Blank. Oh, so you've never seen any of any them. of them? Wow. Yeah. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I don't know if those movies are, I don't know if they're essential, but they feel like a quintessential 90s movies. Right. I don't think they're spoken about like other things of that era, but they, watching them, they so very much feel of that moment. And I think of them, I like Swingers the least. You know, it's certainly had its its charms, um, but you know, it was fine. It wasn't money. It wasn't money. Uh, I really liked Go and Gross Point Blank. Though. Gross Point Blank, I had no idea that it was like an action rom-com. I had no idea about oh, this. Yeah. And, then, and then Dan Aykroyd was also a pleasant surprise. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty weird. Um, yeah, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't really know what else to say about them <laughs> besides I crossed them off my list. But yeah, I, you know, they're they're sort of... They're movies that were important at a time when I was maybe a couple of years behind where I needed to be to sure to engage with that kind of stuff. I'm trying to remember. I think I watched all of those uh, on DVD. I don't think any of those were movies that I saw in the theater, but I did watch them probably mm-hmm. close to their release on home video. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're all okay. I never a big swingers fan like you and mm-hmm. I, I do like gross point blank but although it's been a long time since I've watched it yeah I remember the soundtrack was really big yes uh, when it came out although mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you what was on it right now <laughs> I think I think Joe Strummer did a lot of stuff sounds right it's been a few months since I watched it now so oh uh, this is a big one from earlier in 2019 um, I really liked us uh-huh. and I am completely on board for whatever Jordan Peele does next oh yeah for sure um I also think that um, Lapita uh, Youngyo's performance is probably the best of the year. Yeah. It's just otherworldly good, especially because it doesn't really fit that mold of what around Oscar season people talk about as great performances. And it's that's usually like these stuffy kind of like, you know, period piece stuff or someone gaining a lot of weight or doing some ridiculous accent or something. She's just doing something very... I don't know. I mean, it's it's almost campy. Yeah, some and, of it. And I think I remember at like a family cookout over the summer, someone being like, yeah, that movie sucked. I hated it. I hated every minute of it. And I was like, I don't know. I, I just don't. I think they were so hung up on sort of like what we were talking about with The Good Place, um, the sort of logic of the world. Yeah, sure. Maybe it. It, there, there's no practical way that there can be an entire like underground society, <laughs> a network of tunnels under an entire nation. Who cares? Who gives a shit? Yeah. Like that visual at the end is great. It is. And it's so, of course he's producing the Twilight Zone reboot. Of course he is. Yeah. And, Which I hear isn't very good. But still like that's, yeah. he's playing in that, you yeah. know, and like the stuff that you can get away with, quote unquote, that you think you can get away with on like a, a Twilight Zone because it's a half hour. Mm-hmm. So who cares? Kind of like we were talking about with Tales from the Crypt. It's so short that like we don't need to spend time in the logistics. Just throw the crazy on top of it. Get Out has a similar wacky turn 
And I think that's so refreshing to see, especially with horror movies. Yeah. Because they can be talking about these super serious things. And like both of them have super weighty themes throughout, you know, throughout each movie. But they're fucking fun. Yeah. Like parts of them are silly, especially with us. Like some of it's it was so much weirder than I was even expecting. Yeah. He kind of like leaned into that for Mm -hmm. this one. I think the directions may be a little better than Get Out. Um, There's some really, really indelible uh, images uh, and I, I love how he uses music too, because a lot of horror movies, their soundtracks feel pretty safe. Like you kind of recognize what the soundtrack is doing. And I feel like he does these, like he took like a hip hop song and they expanded it to make it orchestral. And it just has this just different vibe. It's like really Baroque and, and kind of big and almost operatic and it's just not something you see in a lot of horror movies so it's great to just like have someone that's interested in horror and doing something that doesn't feel as predictable I guess yeah uh, it just it, I feel like watching it you get the sense that like yes he has something to say but he also he's having so much fun doing it as opposed to watching other horror movies and it just feels like you know they're, they're trying to just bum you out or you know, lean into the grime of it. Mm-hmm. And I think what we both enjoy so much about horror as a genre is the the fun. Sure. So. I, I mean, I like, oftentimes I like what, you know, and Us is a perfect example because it, it's attempting to say a lot of things. And maybe not all of it works, but it could do all that with this ridiculous premise. Yeah. You know, I and I, I kind of like that. I like that go for broke, like, we're going to attempt to to have these conversations mm-hmm. but at the same time we could we could be weird and silly earlier this year a new uh, John Wick movie came out which is pretty great uh, I don't you know I don't think you've seen a lot of I think you've only seen the first John Wick right? I've seen the first two I haven't yeah. seen the newest one uh, I, I really like all of them I, I really like this new one um, but uh, after the movie I, um, you know I do what I do and I'm, I was trying to watch a bunch of martial arts things and I had forgotten that Keanu Reeves had actually directed a movie. Uh, it's called The Man of Tai Chi. So um, I watched that, and I thought it was good. Like, his competent direction. You could tell that he learned a lot by working with the Wachowskis and a lot of fight choreography uh, or stunt chor- um, choreographers. Uh, so a lot of the action is kind of, you know, it's not a lot of cutting, and there's, like, a clear movement between... Um, all the figures and the fighters. Um, so I was reading a review about it um, and they said that it's reminiscent of a lot of uh, Lu Chai Lang movies. And which is, this wasn't really a name that I was super familiar with. So I looked up his movies and his movies are movies that I, I had heard of. And that's the 36 chamber of Shaolin and all the Shaolin movies return to the 36 chamber. And, and that's like all of the iconography used in Wu-Tang records. So I was like, well, I haven't watched these. I enjoyed this Keanu Reeves movie. So, and I know these are supposed to be pretty good. So I watched a ton of his movies. Uh, the 36 chamber of Shaolin, um, return to the 36 chamber, heroes of the East executioners from Shaolin Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, which I've mentioned on the show, uh, Dirty Ho, <laughs> um, and Legend of the Drunken Master uh, from the 90s. Um, yeah, and, great. That was one I watched for the first time earlier this year. Yeah. 
Uh, terrific. And, and, and with that, you can obviously see like there's attention to, you know, how the figures are moving uh, in correlation with how the camera moves and making sure that the viewer is always aware of where each character is uh, and making sure that when they hit each other, that those hits count. So, so um, Lu uh, Chai Leng, he, he does a lot of medium shots, medium and wide, um, not a lot of cutting. And again, it's so reminiscent to a lot of early musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fight choreography in some of these movies are just, I, I, it's hard to comprehend. And, you know, we talk about this a lot on the show. When you're watching modern movies, it's kind of easy to say like, well, this is how, this is how they thought about this. This is how they constructed this scene. We're always trying to figure out how, how something's established, how a scene is constructed, how visual effects works. And uh, watching a lot of these, it's astonishing how they figure out how to complement this choreography. And I just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around a lot of times. And that's so exciting. Yeah. I really recommend all of these for the most part. Um, He does like straight dramas, just action adventure movies, but he also has a lot of comedies. Dirty Ho is has a lot of fight sequences that are based around like, you know, the comedy of manners of two people at um, a table and they're eating noodles and they're fighting with their chopsticks and their bowls and stuff like that. Um, a lot of them star Gordon Liu, who's um, Liu Chai Lang's brother. And you would know him from Kill Bill. He is um, Wai Pei. He's the one that instructs both Bill and, and Beatrix Kiddo. Mm-hmm. Um, but he uh, he's in pretty much all of these movies, and he's just a great performer and, and, and martial artist. And Lao Chai Leng is also in a lot of these movies as well. Um, but yeah, 36 Chamber of Shaolin is amazing, and 8 Diagram Pole Fighter, uh, all of them are, are pretty terrific. Nice. Uh, what about games? you play any games this year? Not a ton. Yeah. Uh, I started, I think, earlier in the year. Uh, I got the the Marvel Alliance game. Oh, Marvel Ultimate Alliance Three. Yes. Yep. Uh, which I gave up on when it got ridiculous, um, ridiculously difficult. The degree of difficulty that this one particular boss fight had um, was just so so much different than the rest of the game that I just got frustrated and kind of walked away from it and I just got busy with work and, mm-hmm. and everything else so I, I didn't pick it up I haven't picked it up since yeah I played through that one as well um, I stuck with it I did finish it for me I just I don't know what it was it is, took me a while to sort of get my head around how the combat in that game worked mm-hmm. so this game was a throwback to um, the previous Marvel Ultimate Alliance games from Maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. They were on the Xbox 360. Um, before that were the X-Men Legend games, which I played on GameCube. Um, kind of a a top-down action beat-em-up RPG kind of thing uh, where you control. You have a primary character that you're playing as, but you have a team of four Marvel superheroes. You can freely switch between any of them. As you progress, you get new ones. Um, but yeah, I found the end game of it to be really fun to kind of dip my toe back into, especially once I found a, 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 a team of four heroes I really liked. There's some DLC content coming out. They just released one of them with like Marvel Knights characters, but they've oh, got cool. an X-Men and a Fantastic Four. Who, who's your team of four? Um, Colossus, Thor, 
Miss Marvel and Black Panther. So I've been leveling them. I've been trying, like, you know, not trying. It's something I kind of put down and I'll come back to weeks Never. later. But, um, yeah, it's fun just to do the challenges, try to level them up a bit. Sure. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll bring it over and you could beat uh, Doctor Strange. You're stuck on me. Doctor Strange? Yeah. yeah. I Oh, so at the beginning of the year, I did play Hollow Knight, which is probably one of my favorite games uh, of the past, I don't know, 10 years. I really, really took nice. to it. Uh it's that kind of like platforming game, um, yeah, reminiscent like a, of like Metroid. Um, a Metroidvania yeah. is what they call it. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the way it kind of reveals the world and tells its story is through action. It's never really characters sitting down and just kind of filling you in on backstory. You sort of have to piece a lot of it together yourself by just playing. But it's a very satisfying game where you collect things and sure. power, level up and all that stuff and uh, I'm looking forward to the sequel, which I believe is coming out relatively soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and obviously the game I played the most, which w- we won't really get into, is Tetris. Uh, Tetris ninety nine. Yeah, Tetris yep. ninety nine. Yeah. I did get a Switch earlier in the year. Uh huh. So uh, a couple of standouts were uh, Gato Roboto. Okay. Which is again another kind of Metroid style game. Visually, it looks like it would have been released on the Game Boy. It's monochromatic colors. Very. Um, Simple but uh, effective pixel art. You play as a little cat who your your captain crashes his ship on a planet and he's stuck in the cockpit, so you have to go figure out how to get him out. And very quickly you find a mech suit. So it's your this adorable little kitten just like in a, you know, armored robot death machine shooting <laughs> rockets and, and What's stuff. this called? Gato Robato. Gato Robato. Yep. There are some areas where you like the robot suit's too big, so you have to hop out as the cat and crawl through. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the Messenger was another uh, indie game uh, reminiscent of 8- and 16-bit era Ninja Gaiden oh, okay. kind of stuff. So, As punishing as Ninja Gaiden was? Uh, no, because I've been able to finish this, and I was never good at Ninja Gaiden. But a lot of that might have to do with age and experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it starts eight has a very like eight bit look to it, and you later go to the future, and it's sixteen bit. Oh, I think you told and me. And then about you this. you earn the ability to bounce between mm-hmm. times because there are different puzzles that are you know the environments are different depending on which era you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of fun. And what else? Um, oh, this, this just came out on, this was a game from last year, but just came out on Switch and other consoles this year, but, uh, Return of the Obra Dinn, Okay. Which, um, is by the same guy who made a game called Papers, Please, which came out a few years ago. But Return of the Obra Dinn, you play as, uh, an insurance claims adjuster. It's like the early 1800s and the ship arrives in port and everybody on it is dead <laughs> and you have a magic stopwatch. So you have to go through the ship and every time you encounter a corpse you can use the watch to go back to the moment of that person's death okay so you have to go back to the moment of the entire crew and passengers deaths and then piece together which remains belong to who and how they died who killed them what killed them and sort of slowly unravel the story of this ghost ship that just shows up Huh. Uh, in the port and I'm still playing through it but it's, it's very fun and the story gets very surprising very quickly 
uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. So for comics this year, I read, um, it's still ongoing. I believe it's wrapping up soon, but Jason Aaron's run on Thor, he really seems to understand the character. Um, so it has that kind of like epic mythology uh, that harkens back to a lot of old Kirby stuff. Uh, but he's the one that incorporated um, Jane Foster and, and made Jane Foster Thor, Thor for a while, um, which I believe will be the inspiration for some of the, the next Thor movie. Great run. A um, lot of great artwork um, by uh, Russ Dodderman, I believe his name is. Um, I also really loved um, Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer Supreme. Um, and I fell in love with this artist. His name is Javier Rodriguez. Uh, and he has sort of like um, a Steve Ditko kind of vibe, but he really plays around with l his layouts. Um, so looking at one of his pages sometimes can just be really dizzying, and but beautiful. Um, and, and Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer Supreme is um, essentially about all these sorcerers throughout time. So it includes like Merlin, um, and um, that other one, that other guy, and that other person, um, and so they all kind of team up and and to prevent this, you know, this bad guy sure. from taking over. So only twelve issues, and uh, um, I think it it got canceled because no one was reading it. But any of uh, the the stuff that uh, Javier Rodriguez has done, he did a run on Spider Woman, which is pretty great, where she um, she has a baby, um, and it's the artwork is just amazing. Nice, uh, yeah. I have the Marvel Unlimited app, so uh, I've been slowly reading every issue of Amazing Spider-Man. So this year I reread a lot of the stuff I was reading as a kid, and that was the whole McFarlane and Eric Larson. Movie. Oh, cool. Um, so it was fun to revisit that because it's been a really, really long time to see some things that really, really hold up, like a lot of the Eric Larson's artwork in particular. I find McFarlane to be inconsistent. I think he could be pretty sloppy. Mm -hmm. Um and some things that don't hold up, like their portrayal of Mary Jane, which is is pretty rough, mm -hmm. pretty sexist. Um, but yeah, it's still, I love Spidey, so it's been fun kind of going through all that stuff. I don't think I read any new comics mm -hmm. this year. I'm pretty out of the loop there. And I don't remember if it was the end of 2018 or this year that I did this, but I did read all the way through the runs of Transmetropolitan and Why the Last Man. Oh, cool. Um, I've never read Transmetropolitan, but I've read Why. I think I like the idea of Transmetropolitan a lot more than I... That's Warren Ellis, the writer? Yes. Um, a lot of it can be a little edgelordy. Okay. It's definitely of its time, but I think when, when it sort of doesn't let that stuff get in its way, it's got a lot of really weird, fun ideas. And and given the political climate, it's it's an interesting time to be revisiting that. You know, I mean, it ends up being a comic book where the supervillain is a deranged president. So, huh. um, and not he's not that he's a supervillain, but you know what I mean. The big yeah. bad is mm -hmm. he's this awful human who's the president of the United States. And I just I just finished reading the first volume of Hellblazer. Oh, cool. Yeah, which I had picked up months ago and just hadn't gotten to it. But it's a lot. Um, it's a lot more hard-boiled than I was expecting. I mean, it makes sense, but even just um, the way it's written, there's a lot of narration that's very much in that film noir vein. Um, and yeah, it's some fun stuff. Uh, kind of similar to Transmet, and I don't know if this is just sort of how Vertigo books worked for a while, but it had a couple of sort of shorter standalone stories for the first handful of issues, and then 
and then kind of started ramping up with with a larger plot that resolves by the end of it. Um, this particular collection has two issues of Swamp Thing at the end of it that do play off of the cliffhanger from the last issue of Hellblazer in this collection. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that I just had to, you know, kind of take at face value because it's like Swamp Thing number. 76 and 77 so sure. i don't know who the hell these people are i you know it's fun thing right i mean these are from like 87 so yeah who knows what was going on but yeah it was fun uh, i'm i'm definitely interested in, in checking out some more and and there's a lot of hellblazer now, yeah there's quite a bit yeah i went for a long time so i don't know if i'm gonna read all of it as quickly as i read the other two but as far as regular books the big one and i'm just kind of in it now i got this for christmas last year was um Beastie Boys book. Oh, which yeah, here it's really so great. far has been great. I've been taking my time with a, a Bowie biography because I, I just I love Bowie and I don't want the book to end. Yeah. <laughs> so I slowly reading that book and I've been kind of pacing myself throughout the year with that. Um, other than that, a lot of the books I read were kind of centered around the books for the show. Um, but I did read um, Mike Reese's book. Uh, he was a writer for The Simpsons. Oh, okay. Uh, still a writer for The Simpsons, but he was there yeah. for like the a lot of the big seasons. Too. Sure, he's sure. been around for a long time. Um, I it, interviewed him in college for my school. Oh, newspaper. that's awesome! Yeah, he came to do a talk, and I remember being super nervous. Mm-hmm. And I sat down, and he gave me like maybe an hour of his wow. time. And I did a, I just ran it as a Q and A, and then he gave his talk. And I mean, all the answers he gave me were basically the stories he told at the thing, and sure. I was so embarrassed because I. I felt like I, like published the script for a play before, <laughs> before it opened. That's not necessarily your fault, though. No, but like, yeah, I was very green and overexcited. I kind of got that feeling reading the book that, like, oh, I bet you he tells these stories all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still fun to read and kind of get some insight into the writers' room or for The Simpsons and to see how that, uh, you know, how the show puts an episode together. Uh, some of his humor is a little too. I don't want to say old-fashioned. The way he constructs a joke definitely feels from a different era, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes you can kind of see the punchlines coming. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really want to ascribe that to being feeling like an older kind of... I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it justice, and I don't want to disparage old comedy because I love a lot of older things, so forget it. But anyway, um, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a, it's, it's, it's a pretty charming read. I read Lovecraft Country. Okay. Which, speaking of Jordan Peele, he's producing the adaptation for HBO. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, which, you know, takes, you know, sort of plays with the uh, the the Lovecraftian mythology in terms of the fiction and also, you know, the mythology around the man in terms of him being a, a well-self-documented racist. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it plays like a collection of short stories, but it revolves around... Um, a group of uh, African-American characters who are sort of unwittingly absorbed into this world of like dark magic and ancient horror. So it's all very Lovecraftian stuff, um, but it flips the perspective. So you, you've sort of got, you've got people who are in, you know, the, the, the mid 20th century bumping up against, you know, the sort of inherent horrors of being uh, a black man or woman at that time, also while there are these uh, unimaginable 
cosmic and supernatural forces and they're all sort of intertwined and yeah it's an interesting read i think it'll be i'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what the tv show turns out to be the the new watchman show sounds similar in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. where it's you know if the watchman comic was about how superheroes exist how would they exist in the real world was it take for a normal person to be to want to do something like that the show is really approaching it from uh, through race mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it does some really complicated thorny uh, things with that so it, it, yeah it sounds they're both kind of on the same page in a lot of ways mm-hmm. mm. similar fun genre stuff uh, from a, a black perspective I read Devil in a Blue Dress which is the first Easy Rollins mystery by uh, Walter Mosley okay so again it's just it's um you know, just changing the perspective, it's set in post-war Los Angeles, but it's, you know, uh, in Watts, the the main character is a, a black veteran who's just lost his job and his bartender knows a, a white guy who's looking for someone to, to do something on the side and he suddenly finds himself, you know, in, in, you know without intending to becoming a, a sort of private eye. Hmm. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we've talked about maybe doing... Um, Something like that down the road. Yeah, um, the book and the movie. Yeah, there is the movie with Denzel Washington. Yep. Um, I also read Fletch. Oh, how, how is Fletch? It's good. It's um. I used to love the movies when I was young. The movie is definitely a Chevy Chase movie. Yeah. Um, you know, broad strokes, it's all there. Mm-hmm. Um, the same type of plot, but it is more. Um, he is a bit more of a of a cynical character in the book. It's easy to see why Chevy Chase works so well as that character. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like, I think, a dozen Fletch books. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was that was another fun one. Cool. So in lieu of any recommendations, what are you, you know, what are you looking forward to in 2020? Are there any things that, you know, any older things that you're hoping to catch up on? Yeah, I think... Um, I haven't had my usual bandwidth for like kind of looking to the future for pop culture stuff, but certainly I've been just throwing more things on the on the back burner. Some big ones that I'm hoping to get to this winter, in terms of games, uh, I've been sitting on The Witcher Three, which I hear is enormous, huge. Yeah, I hear it's like a hundred hour open Jesus world RPG Christ. where every side quest is worth doing. Oh God. Um, Horizon Zero Dawn, which was um kind of like a Zelda E action RPG on PlayStation from a couple years back. Uh-huh. Um oh and and Breath of the Wild. Oh yeah, you've never played it. I haven't played it yet. Yeah. Um so there's those. There is well, actually coming out, I believe it'll be out by the time this episode drops, but Jeff Vandermeer who wrote Annihilation. Uh-huh. Um has a book called Dead Astronauts which actually is set in the same world as another novel of his called Born which I read earlier this year, which is really trippy. Very cool, um, weird sci-fi stuff, which, yeah, I think you'd like. Um, okay. It's the first of his novels that I've read. I'd seen the movie Annihilation, but I hadn't ever read the book. I'm really excited for the next season of The Righteous Gemstones. I'm continuing to work my way through The Sopranos. We're awesome. at the beginning of season three. I'd seen the first season after the show had ended, and I came to it in like mm, season five, through roommates in mm-hmm. school 
So watching through, now I'm getting to the stuff that I have no familiarity with, besides knowing who's probably going to die because they're not, <laughs> they're not there later on. Top of mind, those are the things that I'm either looking to get off the pile or looking, to, looking forward to. What about you? I downloaded Kolchak the Night Stalker. Okay. It's a TV show from the 70s, I believe. Yeah, with uh, the dad from A Christmas Story, right? Is it? Maybe. It's supposed to be pretty great. It's supposed to be like a kind of X-Files type of thing, like a heavy mm-hmm. influence on shows like the X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, so I think there's only like 12 episodes. It was pretty cheap. It was like, I think like four bucks, and that's why I did it. And and people were like, oh, this is this is great. So I'm I, I'm looking forward to watching that. Typically, when it comes to movies, you know, I kind of look at the slate of what's coming up and I kind of see where my blind spots are and, you know, whether it's something that's influencing. I'll read an interview with a director and if they said, this movie influenced this and if I'm unfamiliar with it, I like to go back and kind of watch that. But um, Blank Check, the podcast with uh, um, Griffin Griffith Newman and David Sims, they're doing a whole mm-hmm. series on Jonathan Demi. So I'm kind of looking forward to filling in some Jonathan Demi blind spots. Oh, nice. I, I just watched Swing Shift. Mm-hmm. Um, which was kind of taken away from him by the studio, and he doesn't like the cut that I saw. But apparently, there's a director's cut that is available if you are capable of, you know, looking through back channels. I guess. Sure. Uh, do you have? A, do you own a copy of Something Wild? I do. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever seen it? I started to one night. I was really into it, but it was kind of yeah. late, and I fell asleep. And then Ooh. when I went back to watch it. It wasn't on the streaming platform sure. anymore. So um, that might be worth doing an episode on. It's a it's a pretty great movie. Yeah, I've seen a lar- large portion of his movies, but there's a few few big ones that I haven't seen. Um, yeah, and then we'll kind of see where things go. Sometimes, you know, what's great with the Criterion Channel, which you know I've proselytized about in the past on this show, um, but they have some curated stuff. So like this year. I watched a bunch of Columbia noir movies from the 50s and 60s. So anything like that that pops up on Criterion that might interest me, I'll try and do a deep dive in. And I'm always trying to fill in more blind spots as far as, you know, um, any other kind of cinema that's outside of our country because, you know, I still haven't really seen any Bollywood movies and that feels like a really big blind spot for a, a movie buff. So I wouldn't mind dipping my toe into that and also maybe doing some kind of Bollywood movie, mm-hmm. although I'd like to have some sort of guide to help us with that because I know there's so many and mm-hmm. it's so overwhelming and it's hard to kind of... How do you narrow that down? Right. Um, we didn't talk about it and it's too late to get into it now, but Parasite was great. Parasite is wonderful. Um, yeah. Uh, more South Korean movies would be great or mm-hmm. Korean movies in general. Um, yeah. More Kung Fu movies. I've been really enjoying those and so whatever kind of comes my way, I guess. Nice. Yeah. yeah, so this was the first year of the podcast. Yeah. Pretty thank- pretty exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. Thank you for everyone who's listened and shared your thoughts with us. We are excited to keep moving into 2020. I, I, think, uh, I think at this point we've gotten the big ones that were sort of in that initial list. Yeah. That, like that rough sketch of the idea. So I think going forward, I'm not going to make any promises, but I think we're going to start, you know, turning over some rocks and really. Yeah, we have some interesting ideas and and, and ways to kind of push the show into different areas Mm -hmm. or or 
we can maybe play a little bit with the structure. I know we've talked about doing an episode on the Oscars and maybe instead of catching up with whatever best pictures are nominated this year, we're maybe going to roll a die and, and pick a year at random and, yeah. and, and fill in those uh, best picture winners. Yeah, um, Maybe do uh, some notorious bombs that we may have missed. Yep. Um, we've also talked about, I think we're going to do some best of decade stuff because now that this decade is ending, there's a lot of lists that are popping up. So, um, you know, maybe it's not worth going into the top five movies, but maybe like the top 15 through 20 because you may get some weird stuff in the margins that both of us have missed. So it might be fun to talk about, talk about some best of movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, music's lists from the decade. Yeah. And then uh, we're also going to do an episode on the fucking Beatles. So <laughs> pretty crazy. Yes. Both Tony and I are, are Beatles fans. I, is it safe to say you're yeah. a fan? Uh, but uh, well, yeah, I do not feel like I could confidently call this a blind spot by any stretch. Sure. But we've got a couple of guests lined yes. up who very much um, copped to the fact that yeah. the Beatles are a blind spot for them. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited about that, actually. Um, I like how I said we're going to turn over rocks and you mentioned the most famous band of all time. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. So, yeah. So we'll see where the, the year takes us. And, you know, we we have some, you know, list of things that we'd like to talk about. Um, and so we'll see what we hit. You know, you never know. Yeah. And if if you're listening and you have any suggestions or things that you love that you think maybe we haven't seen or, or listened to or are familiar with and, you know, shoot us a message because we're always looking to discover new things. Damn right. Fuck yeah. What are we talking about next time? Uh, next time, we're going to be talking about Jackie Chan's police story. Fuck yeah. Pretty excited about this because this was in contention for one of our first episodes. Yeah, yeah. We... we... We talked about doing a Jackie Chan episode because he's, you know, a superstar. But, you know, my familiarity with him really started when he made the Rush Hour movies. I think that's really, you know, if maybe some of his previous Hong Kong stuff sort of got him on America's radar, Rush Hour is what really kind of made him a, a bankable star here, I would say. Yeah. Which um, is crazy. I think he is the most recognizable star on the planet yeah probably he's, he's massive i mean everywhere. yeah it the, took him forever to become massive here but. yeah rush hour is probably close to 20 years into his career if not more yeah yeah uh so as we mentioned we've we've i, I watched legend of the drunken master sort yep. of in preparation but we're gonna be um we're gonna be watching police story one and two yeah criterion just put out a restored version on blu-ray and I picked it up when it came out, which I believe was in like April. Yeah. Uh, and that's when we started talking about doing an episode on it. And just, you know, one thing after another came our way. And um, so we didn't get a chance to do it yet. But that's the next episode. And we're, yeah. we're pretty excited to talk about it. Cool. All right. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss? If you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at What Did We Miss? And if you want to drop us a line, our email is whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks as always to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence. For more information, you can go to their website at whatcheerclub.org or follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.org.